In 2019, the CDC released their Antibiotic Resistance Threats Report that outlines the prevalence of antimicrobial resistance that we face today. According to the report, in the United States, there are 2.8 million antibiotic-resistant infections, and in 35,000 of these cases, the infection leads to death. Possible resistant types of bacteria are ranked from concerning to urgent threats. One of these urgent threats is a common infection that you can obtain in hospitals called C. difficile that causes diarrhea and inflammation in the colon. Another one of the urgent threats includes drug-resistant gonorrhea, which they estimate infects approximately 550,000 people in America each year. I'm your host, Sarah, and you're listening to Hashtag Health, a podcast supported by the University Students' Council at Western University and the Canadian Federation of Medical Students. If you like this episode of Hashtag Health Podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for a chance to win an Amazon gift card. New winners will be announced on the podcast and on Facebook every week. In part two of hashtag antimicrobial resistance, we are diving further into the topic with Dr. Podolsky, a family physician, historian at Harvard Medical School, and author of The Antibiotic Era, Reform, Resistance, and the Pursuit of Rational Therapeutics. Public perception of antibiotics has changed drastically over time. As I mentioned in part one, there was such a dependence in the pharmaceutical companies to keep up with antibiotics that they couldn't sell vaccines for these infections. So what changed from then till now? Why haven't the pharmaceutical companies been able to keep up with the resistant bugs? Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly in the 50s and 60s, there was this faith in the pharmaceutical industry to, to keep up. But it went from there were narrow-spectrum antibiotics like penicillin to these broad-spectrum antibiotics, and you'd find resistance, and then they'd throw in what's what called fixed-dose combination antibiotics as a way to sort of continue this, to circumvent things. It's not really until the 80s and 90s when the pharmaceutical industry has begun to put much more of its resources into treating chronic disease drugs. So it's much more profitable to make a good drug for hypertension or hypoglipidemia than it is for a brief course of an antibiotic. So that you get to this point where you say, oh, you know, what are we doing? The pharmaceutical industry isn't able to keep up anymore. And then now you have this, what can we do to incentivize the pharmaceutical industry to re-engage with antimicrobials? It's a good question, right? So this could be framed as the original model for antimicrobial discovery was the soil sifting model, right? That someone waxman sifts soil in New Jersey and finds streptomycin and great. And that model creates this huge class of drugs in the next decade and a half or so. And now we've exhausted the easy ways, and now it's much harder. Okay, so that, that's in place too. But also B, that, that we're still we're probably a little bit smarter than we were 60, 70 years ago. We've developed science a little bit more so. And therefore, uh, we should, with the proper incentives, be able to come up with new forms of antimicrobial therapy. Uh, and therefore, we need to have various push mechanisms and pull mechanisms. So push is, we need to, if, if it is super hard to get a drug on the marketplace, and if it's not super easy to test these drugs, we need to create funds of money to give to companies to help incentivize them to go on the marketplace. And there are, there are movements like Carbex, which is a pool, giant pool of money that's, that can be allocated to companies to start investing in things. Pull issues are more around how do you shape the marketplace so that a drug company will want to create an antibiotic in the first place? I mean, and I have some, some sympathy for industry where they say, look, here's your new drug. Great. But as soon as that drug's in the marketplace, 
folks like me are going to say, okay, now you need to preserve that, conserve it. We can't use it. We need to have that in reserve. So we may need to decouple the very the entire relationship between sales and volume and reimbursement and say, it's no longer based on sales. How about if you get a new drug on the marketplace, you get a billion dollars if it's a good drug as a collective societally offered prize or something like that. And so there has been this movement towards, you know, how, how do we re-engage industry with, with doing this? Uh, I, I still think that more money and thought is being given to how to re-engage the industry than are to these other components of antibiotic stewardship and vaccines and diagnostics, et cetera. Uh, but we'll see how that all plays out. So we learned from experience that we cannot solely depend on pharmaceutical companies to keep up with resistant bugs. Along with creating the push and pull mechanisms discussed by Dr. Podolsky, there needs to be systemic changes in the current usage of antibiotics. Yeah, and there, and there, there, there are various ways to frame this. So there are educational initiatives, and those can range from CME, control, it's going to be medical education and, and mandating that I go and learn about appropriate prescribing. It can be counter detailing. So if a lot of pharmaceutical marketing happens through individual drug detailing, someone comes out to me and says, Scott, this is why you should be prescribing a ZPAC for every patient. There are notions of counter detailing, right? So, so folks coming out and say, this is why you should not be prescribing a ZPAC for every person with, with a cold. There are, this can happen institutionally through electronic medical records. So I could go to prescribe something and could say, are you sure you've coded this as rhinitis? You're now coding this as Augmentin, do you really want to make this kind of prescription? So there's, all, there's a whole wave of, of educational measures that have been imposed. Then there are a whole wave of more restrictive measures. So these range from antibiotic stewardship programs. So I'm in the hospital, I want to prescribe a given drug. Certain drugs, I need to call the infectious disease consultant to get approval for that drug. Or it may be that even in the outpatient setting, that there are certain drugs that I can or cannot prescribe. So there are various efforts. This is this whole educational versus regulatory effect manners by which one could control or at least shape prescribing. Um, and this can happen at the system level as well. And we see both. And it looks like it's some type of a combination of, of factors that seem to be most effective. Another important aspect is to decrease the demand of antibiotics through educating the public on antimicrobial resistance and how antibiotics do not actually work against a virus. Yes, a, a large component of Many antibiotic campaigns has been public education. So the U.S., the CDC had its Get Smart campaign. I know Canada, Canada Health has had, I've seen advertisements similarly saying, please don't use antibiotics for your colds. Um, and yet, a couple of years ago, we were looking at U.S. perceptions of, perceptions among Americans of, is, are viruses susceptible to antibiotics? And over 50% of people still said yes. Now, whether the, that's from decades of physicians like me, giving patients with colds antibiotics, or whether it's some other lack of education, who knows. But, but absolutely, I think public education is often thought to be a critical component of stewardship. Like Dr. Podolsky said, 50% of people said they do believe that viruses are susceptible to antibiotics. Hopefully, through awareness and education, we can decrease the demand of antibiotics. And it should be said that healthcare is not the only culprit behind antimicrobial resistance. Use of antibiotics in animal agriculture also plays a key role in the development of resistance in microbes. While we discussed implementing changes in developed nations, how do we combat antibiotic misusage globally, especially when there are places that give over-the-counter antibiotics to whoever wants them? But restricting the sale of over-the-counter antibiotics is a complex issue without a simple fix. 
Sure. I mean, and it is. It's a different structure in any given location and with its own unique history that, that comes to bear on, on how care is delivered. So in the U.S., I think people at the time, let's say in the 50s, and certainly me historically looking back would say that a lot of what we think of as irrational therapy was conditioned somewhat culturally by pharmaceutical marketing, right? So, so doctors who were deemed to be, here you are, medical student, super bright medical student, deemed to be impervious to advertising, well, Doctors have not historically been so impervious to advertising, myself included. And so this became quite apparent by the 50s. And they were saying, we're constantly under assault from pharmaceutical marketing around new drugs, new antibiotics. And it's no longer a question about whether a given case needs antibiotics. It's which antibiotics should we, should we choose? And so Harry Dowling, who's one of these reformers, gives this talk before the AMA in 1957 called Twix the Cup and the Lip. The cup was the crucible in which the drug is being made. The lip is the mouth of the patient. He says, look, the, the techniques that are being used to advertise cars, tobacco, whiskey, are now being used to advertise drugs to doctors. And we're going to all fall together. Pharmaceutical industry, medical profession, patients. It, it's a particular dystopia built around irrational therapy. So I think in the U.S., a, a lot of it has been predicated on, on marketing. And so to some of the ground structures of care, but much more, I think, on marketing. Whereas in the, the global world and certainly in the developing world, Sure. I mean, if you have places where antibiotics have been available without prescription, and perhaps because that's needed, perhaps there is no infrastructure to otherwise get drugs to people, um, that, that will lead to what me sitting in my ivory tower in Boston will say, that's a rational therapy. Every patient with a fever is just simply getting antibiotic without figuring out what type of bug they may have. So it, it's there, there, there are different forces creating both irrational therapy or structuring, hopefully, rational therapy in, in, in varying locations. When the infrastructure is not set up appropriately, the answer may not be as simple as just stop selling them over the counter. So while we have been discussing drug excess in the developed world, there are many places where antibiotics are not available and people are dying from curable diseases. A report by the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics, and Policy recently found that annually there are 5.7 million antibiotic treatable deaths that occur. This is in contrast to the estimated 700,000 deaths that occur annually from antibiotic-resistant infections. Therefore, we need to focus not only on antimicrobial stewardship, but also on antibiotic access globally. Much of antibiotic reform over the last 10, 15 years has focused on antibiotic excess. Right? We need to have a global treaty to prevent irrational usage. And therefore, no antibiotics should be available over the counter and etc. However, there are places where there's still questions about antibiotic access, not just excess. And you sort of have to tailor your remedies to given locations and make sure that folks who need antibiotics can access them. So, so, so even the solutions really depend on, the, on local conditions as well, which makes it hard to have a universal global antibiotic policy. Antimicrobial resistance is an issue that needs to be addressed from many angles. It is not solely about restricting usage, but also about education and the upstream factors, such as lack of access to appropriate medical care, that need to be addressed to combat antimicrobial resistance. And to me today, it leads to these larger factors. So historically, there was the rationality of keeping certain drugs off the marketplace, for drugs that were in the marketplace, there were questions about what are the forces needed to create appropriate slash rational therapy. I'm hoping that we are moving towards these upstream determinants of rational care, right? So whether, whether how the clinic may be framed in my office in Boston, where if you see patients every five minutes, 
there's one kind of force that's forcing you to prescribe antibiotics or not. First, you see every patient's half hour and if it's more time to explain why their cold doesn't need antibiotics, it allows you the space to create a more rational therapy. That's a luxury problem. What about in parts of the developing world where drug supply lines aren't in place, where the infrastructure for primary care itself is not in place? What we may consider rational therapy is contingent on these much larger forces. So my hope is that contemporary discussion around rational therapy will look at these factors influencing the, the, the structure of care delivery itself. There is actually new exciting research that was published in Nature this month. Research conducted at McMaster University by Culp et al. found two new members of the functional class of glycopeptide antibiotics called complestatin and corbomycin. While medication like penicillin acts to destroy the cell wall of bacteria, these new compounds actually make the cell wall unable to remodel, so the bacteria can't multiply and spread, making the host sick. The compounds were able to reduce bacterial burden in a mouse model with skin MRSA infection and only showed low levels of resistance development. While this is an exciting development, the research was conducted in mouse models, so we have to wait until more research is done to really consider it as a new line of antibiotics. You've been listening to Hashtag Health. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for your chance to win an Amazon gift card. Also consider giving us a follow on Instagram and or Twitter at hashtag, spell the whole word, hashtag, health podcasts and liking us on Facebook. This episode is brought to you by Mary Nguyen and me, your host, Sarah Howard.